Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you're lost in a zone, or you're sinking like a stone, carry on. May your path be the sound of your feet upon the ground. Carry on. Carry on. Carry on. Well, hi there, and welcome to the Bewitch Show. That is the theme song that shaped my experience that I'm about to talk about. This episode is called My Trip to London. Some of you may know that uh, I spent recently two months in the United Kingdom. I had the privilege of going on a job swap. My company Uh, sent me over there for two months in trade with another lawyer who worked for our parent company there. And I lived in Chelsea, my my flat, (laughs) which is what they call apartments in the UK, my flat was in Chelsea, which is a really, apparently a really nice part of London. And um, it wasn't so much because they wanted to treat me with kid gloves as much as it was that I needed to be in a place that was going to be within walking distance from the office because I wasn't going to have a car, as many people in the United, as in, in London, don't. And so um, I'm going to tell you about my trip to London. First of all, I'll tell you, it was a phenomenal trip. I had an absolutely amazing time. It was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for the world. I was infinitely, infinitely grateful for having the opportunity to do that because how often, face it, How often do you get to go live in a country that most people would consider the next best country to your own, and um, you get to live there for two months, so you're not, it's not a permanent commitment, and somebody else pays for, you know, the uh, most expensive things like, you know, your flight and your your accommodation. Fantastic. So I had had an absolutely wonderful time. It was a gas, and uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. My arrival. Uh, I was picked up by a driver from a car service. And I have to say, my first experience was not a good one because we had trouble finding the flat. And this guy, uh, the driver of this car, from this car service, became really rude and belligerent, and he kept insisting that he was running late to the point where I asked him if he would like to call another driver because I was afraid that he was going to leave me stranded on the side of the road with all of my baggage, and um, that's how bad it got. And so when we finally found the place, you know, he unceremoniously, he unceremoniously dumped my suitcase on the sidewalk and peeled off just as I was getting my handbag out of the back seat of the car. And he left me to haul my four suitcases and laptop bag up two flights of stairs. And um, the, the kicker, though, was that when I complained to one of my coworkers the next day, she pointed out to me that actually English drivers are actually known for being quite rude and not customer-friendly. This is not something that you're used to. Oftentimes in, say, the Midwest, maybe in some parts of the U.S., 
you might expect that, but you know, even in kinder, gentler New York these days, you expect the drivers, especially from a car service, you expect your drivers to be really courteous and to be really into customer service. So that was the first thing that I learned. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you about the lesson I learned that was very expensive that I did not know. I had four pieces of luggage when I left the United States that I was checking in. All four were suitcases because, after all, I was going to be gone for two months. I get to the counter for this, you know, uh, airline that will remain unnamed. And because I travel so much, I was allowed two free uh, bags to check in. And for the remaining two, I was charged 570 U.S. dollars. I was shocked. And so we went back and forth, and I said, yeah, but I get two free. And the guy says, yeah, you did get two free. Um, do you want to, how would you like to pay for these? And I'm like, $570, but there's just two of them. And uh, he said, yeah, that's what it costs when you have, you know, more pieces of luggage. And so all of that to say, um, if you're traveling and you have excess baggage, just know that if you have to check that kind of luggage in, it is going to cost you. And that was with two pieces of luggage free. So if I had one piece of luggage free, it would have probably cost me seven in the 700 range. And if I had no pieces of luggage free, I would have paid, you know, good over $1,000 to check in my luggage. So understand that that whole luggage thing is very, very expensive. So that lesson learned, we go on to next, walking. One of the really cool things that Londoners are quite well known for is walking. People in London seem to walk just everywhere. And, the, you know, the context for walking in the U.K. is very different from the U.S. So in the U.S., you know, if a place is a 10-minute walk away, I might be inclined to jump in my car. In London, if where you're going is within an hour's walk, they consider that a pretty short walk. Oh, it's in walking distance. And I'm like, oh, geez, really? So I get to my uh, flat, and I was told it was within 20 minutes walk of the office. Unfortunately, whoever told me that was quite tall because uh, when you're short, it takes even longer. So if I was walking at a regular pace, it took me 40 minutes to get to work. If I was walking at a pretty brisk pace, I could I could shave a few minutes. It took me 34 minutes to get to the office. But I found that actually Englanders, they are really, really big on walking. Now, I could take the train. Um, there is both an underground and an overground train system in the U.K., or I could take the bus. The other thing I learned about the U.K. is they have a phenomenal public transportation system. So their train system would, I would equate to, say, the New York subway system. Very ubiquitous. You can get everywhere you want to go around London. You can get to other countries um, with the, I think it's the Eurostar that goes cross-country. And so there was one trip I took where I had to go from Amsterdam to Germany. And I went to uh, uh, a place in East Germany, a place in West Germany, and I could take the train from Amsterdam to East Germany to West Germany, and that's true of London. I could go just about anywhere from the Victoria Station to other countries, right? I could take a train to get to Paris. I could take a train to get to all sorts of, you know, just about every place else in Europe. Phenomenal, phenomenal public transportation system. And so... um 
that is one of the good things that you will find if you ever have to go to London. The other really, really good thing was the way that I was able to get um, cards to get around. So if you ever have to spend any amount of time in London, get yourself what is called an Oyster card. I don't know why it's called an Oyster card, but it's an Oyster card. An Oyster card is a card that you can use on the trains and you can use on the bus. And you just touch it to a pad when you get on the bus, and it automatically charges you the bus fare. You can um, touch it to the same pad on when you get into the underground system, and it automatically deducts the amount for your trip. And when you get to, especially on the trains, when you get to your destination, you have to touch it to the pad to let you out of the gates, and it will figure out what the fare is for the trip you've taken. So it is extremely convenient. You can get an Oyster card at um, certain places at, at, at most stations, train stations, bus stations. You can get an Oyster card uh, at some uh, foreign currency exchange places. You can get an Oyster card and various terminals throughout the city, but I would recommend it absolutely. You can top it up. So you can put 20 pounds on your Oyster card, and when you run out, you can uh, go into a train station and you can top it up with money from a credit card or some other you know, debit card. Very, very convenient. The other thing that is really cool about London is when I got to the foreign exchange at the airport, I gave them my U.S. currency, and the guy behind the counter said to me, well, you know, I can give you cash, but you'd probably better off be better off with a debit card. And so at the airport, instead of getting traveler's checks, instead of getting cash, I got a little bit of cash just for incidentals. But for the most part, I used my debit card. And the reason you want to do that is a couple of things. If you're coming from outside the country, so for me, I've got United States-issued credit cards. One of the things I learned the hard way is that actually if I use my credit card in some other country, it's fine. It'll go through, but my credit card company will charge me some really exorbitant rate to to translate um, the currency. And so there's some sort of transaction fee for every single transaction that I had. So if I paid four pounds for... Um, a meat pie. I might be charged three pounds just for the conversion by my credit card company. So if you can avoid it, try and avoid using your um, U.S. or your credit cards from your country of origin because you may have all sorts of other fees that you did not plan on. So the great thing, the other great thing about this debit card is that it's got a chip. A lot of countries in Europe use a chip in order to recognize the card. So on U.S. cards, for example, most of them have a a barcode that you have to scan. So you have to swipe the card through the machine in order for uh, the machine to read it. Well, in, in, in London and in other European countries, you insert the card um, with the chip part uh, going into the machine The credit card machine reads the chip. It prompts you to type in your PIN. You type in your PIN, and that's how the transaction is done. So 
So it's a lot more convenient. It's a lot faster, and people will they they'll be able to scan it if you have to use a scanner. But there is that sort of translation point where there's a beat where they have to figure out what it is that you're trying to do, and they look at the car and they try and use the scanner, and then they ask you, you know, can you do you have a, a PIN number, and on and on and on. So much easier when you get to the airport, get you a card. And it will be a lot easier. And just like your Oyster card, you can top up that card as well. Now, compare that to coming to the United States. I talked to, um, in fact, uh, the CEO of my company. We had a one-on-one while I was over there in Europe. And one of the things he said to me that really hadn't struck me was how hard it is when you come to the U.S., if you're a foreign national, to get a any sort of credit card because in the U.S., you have to have a social security number and a credit history in order to get a credit card. If you don't have those two things, so if you're here for two months, then it gets really, really difficult to get a credit card. So that's one of the things that I believe the the English really got right, and they really tailor the country. You can tell this country is tailored towards tourists. They have millions and millions and millions of tourists who come into London every year. And you can tell this place is designed for tourists because, and I have to laugh about this, um, they have signs. They they have painted signs. And if you visit speedway.com at the posting for this show, you're going to see a bunch of pictures that I took while I was there, including the road signs. And the road signs are painted marks that basically, if you look down at the road when you're standing there as a pedestrian, it will tell you which way to look uh, for cars. So it will say, look left, and it will have an arrow pointing to the left, just in case you don't know which way that is. And it will have on the other side of the street, you know, look right, and an arrow pointing to which side is right, so that you know which way to look for cars before you cross the road. Now, cynical lawyer that I am, it is my personal suspicion that actually chances are the reason they probably do that is because some jaywalker showed up from some other country, they looked the wrong, probably American, they looked the wrong way, tried to cross the street, got hit by a car, some lawyers sued, and after the suit they decided, fine, we are just going to paint road signs everywhere in the country that will tell the idiot which way to look. That's just what I suspect. And so um, that was one of the funny things that you don't see in the U.S., but you see it all over the place in London. So I thought that was pretty clever. Um, Real estate in London, incredibly expensive. You would not believe it. So I, I kept listening to people tell me how great a place Chelsea was. Now, I thought it was great because the Chelsea football team, which is soccer for those of you who uh, are not familiar, the Chelsea football team was doing very, very well. In fact, they beat Liverpool while I was there, and that was a long-standing rivalry. For you Americans, that was like the Vikings, the Vikings and the Packers. Long-standing rivalry, and uh, the Chelsea team was doing quite well. But actually, Chelsea is uh, Chelsea is one of the royal boroughs in London. There are only three of them, and uh because they have boroughs, but they have only three royal boroughs. So that's how big a deal Chelsea is. And um, real estate prices are extremely expensive. And in in London, in central London especially, you could pay as much as uh, $1 to $2 million for a 600-square-foot 
flat. Can you believe it? 600 square feet, $1 to $2 million. I was wandering around. I like to walk around, and, and, and I'm a real estate investor. So I, I like to have an eye towards real estate and see what's happening in different real estate markets. So I'd walk around, and I'd stop and look in the um, real estate agents' shops at the um, ads for flats and what we would call condos here. And wouldn't you know it, in Chelsea, in my neighborhood, the there was one window where the cheapest flat was going for 780,000 pounds. And the most expensive was 7.8 million pounds. And these are not big places. So at 2 million pounds, and the exchange rate was about 1 pound, to a dollar sixty US, so it this is expensive, right? Um, in a two million pound home, I noticed there was a picture of the kitchen, and it looked pretty impressive, very nice looking kitchen, until you noticed that actually it was a really long kitchen, and it was really narrow. It was, and you could tell how narrow it was, because at the end of this kitchen, there was only space enough to fit two bar stools across the width of the kitchen. That's how narrow this place was. So you can't gather in a kitchen like this, like that. And the cost of living is extremely expensive. And some of my workmates told me that actually one of the reasons the English don't entertain a lot in their homes, many of them, is because their homes are just too small to entertain. You couldn't fit you know, 10 people walking around comfortably in your home. So what you tend to do then is you meet out a lot. You go out to the pubs. This is why pubs are part of the reason pubs are so popular. You go out to the pubs. You go out to the restaurants. And that's where you have your social time. Um, so if you think that's bad for real estate, there is uh, it's not as it, Chelsea was not even as expensive as Kensington Palace Gardens, which is also known as Millionaire's Row. And this place is most expensive because most of the homes there have been uh, have been converted to embassies. That's how luxurious a place it is, and it is still one of the most expensive residential areas in London. It is a tree-lined avenue, half a mile long in the heart of embassy land of Kensington, and um, it is extremely exclusive and one of the most expensive areas. And so I say one of the most expensive, even when you're sitting there thinking about how expensive Chelsea is. As of mid-2012, the current market prices for a property on that street, according to Knight Frank, was over 22 million pounds. So that gives you a sense of the expense. So that was pretty interesting. Now, there are, and and I suggest, I really urge you to to visit spirit.com and take a look at the pictures because you'll get a sense for what I'm talking about. Real estate looks very different in London. And you might have an avenue where the entire Avenue is one solid block building, and it is divided into apartments, but there there are no distinctions when you look at the external facade of the building. It, it just looks like one really long building. And so when you're new to the neighborhood, you can't really tell how expensive it is 
except by looking at the cars outside. One of the things I noticed about Chelsea and the areas around central London was how expensive the cars were that parked outside these flats every night. I had never seen a Ferrari, $1.6 million car, sitting outside a flat in my neighborhood in Chelsea. The most common car was the Range Rover. Now, the Range Rover, for those of you who know this car, actually is an English car, um, and mostly, you know, mostly they make trucks, they make sports utility vehicles, and about every other vehicle that I saw parked on the street was a Range Rover, and they're not cheap. They're not cheap here in the U.S., so Range Rovers, you know, the nicer ones you're paying, eighty to a hundred thousand dollars for one of those babies. So imagine at a um one point six exchange rate you can imagine how expensive they are in the United Kingdom. Range Rovers all over the place. Common, common car. Aston Martin, hundred and twenty seven thousand to two hundred and seventy five thousand pounds. That is the base manufacturing suggested retail price for an Aston Martin. And I would see these cars just sitting outside um, every day because these are the, the cars that were driven by the people who lived in my neighborhood. It was amazing. And that is the kind of wealth that some people have in London, and that gives you an idea of some of the expenses. And I finally asked, who are the people who live in these flats? My goodness, they're expensive. The flats are expensive. The cars are expensive. And um, I was told mostly bankers. And um, these must be the same bankers that shop at Harrods because I, I went to visit Harrods, and I kid you not, the prices at Harrods were just off the chain. I saw mostly they sell designer stuff. So Ralph Lauren dress for a five-year-old, 460 pounds. Adult Dress for an adult, decent dress, not an amazing dress, a decent dress, 2,600 pounds. And I'm thinking, who the people who live in Chelsea must be the people who are shopping at Harrods. The only thing I could afford at Harrods were bears, uh, souvenir teddy bears, and the food. And uh, other than that, I just kind of walked around, looked at prices, and, and laughed hilariously because I was just so tickled. One of the other things I noticed that I really loved about London, diversity. Hugely, hugely diverse. Uh, people in New York will probably appreciate this, and if you've ever visited New York, you'll appreciate this. Very diverse. It's truly a melting pot. You see people from every country. I, In fact, so diverse it was that I ran into, quite by accident, a friend of mine from who lives in South Africa. He and his friend are Zimbabwean by origin. And uh, we, we actually ran into each other, in Herod's, I was standing at the Lady Diana Memorial Shrine, and here comes Clive Rugara, my buddy, who I last saw in South Africa, because that's where he lives. And he was visiting for a short while, and uh, so we ran into each other in Herod's. Quite amazing. But as you walk down the street, you see people of every color and 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 national origin it was truly amazing and uh, you saw black people you saw red people yellow people brown people white people you saw everything and i was just really quite tickled um so that was one of the really wonderful things that i i really liked and uh, as a as a matter of interesting culture you know um a lot of a lot of black people in the united states when they see each other they will acknowledge each other and just say hello 
that's part of, you know, I would say the privilege of being one of only 12% of the the entire population, right? You see each other and you acknowledge and you say hello. It's just sort of this unwritten code. Now, there's some there's some cities like Minneapolis, for example, where um, black people don't do that as much. But uh, and I and I I never paid attention to it until one day I had a friend of mine who was Caucasian, and we were walking around the Skyway in Des Moines, Iowa. And finally, we get to our destination, and he asked me about it. And he said, you know what, I noticed you said hello to every single black person that we passed. Um, you know, why is that? And I never really thought about it. And I said, well, you know, it's just what we do. And so I'm in London, and I see all of these Africans. And I'm just tickled silly because you don't see a whole lot of Africans in Minneapolis. And so I am just giddy with excitement, right? And I'm, I started out saying hello, and they just look at you like, what's the matter with you? And um, I guess diversity is such a common thing in London that it's not remarkable to those who live there and work there. And so they don't, you know, the blacks in London do not speak to you. And so <laughs> I thought that was really kind of an interesting cultural difference. But the other thing that I was told by some of my coworkers is that actually while there are very diverse um, people in London, the living situation is actually still pretty segregated. So the you know the Italians will live primarily in a particular area. The Polish will live in a particular area. The Nigerians will live in a particular area. The Pakistanis will live in a particular area. The Hindus will live in a particular area. The Chinese, you get the idea. And so actually when it comes to living arrangements, even though when you go into town, you see them, uh, you see this huge melting pot, the, the living arrangements are not necessarily organized that way. And this is true because when I went back to Chelsea, um, I noticed that a lot of the people who lived in Chelsea looked pretty homogenous. And uh, I can't say what they were culturally, but they all predominantly were, you know, white, Caucasian-appearing people. And maybe they were white English, maybe they were white Caucasian, I don't know. But um, that was something that I thought was actually pretty interesting. Now, in the U.S., the other thing, speaking of socializing, you can strike up a conversation in the United States with a perfect stranger on an elevator about just about anything, particularly sports, the weather, kids, and how much you're looking forward to the weekend. But Londoners, interestingly enough, uh, are are generally not like that. It's, you know, you generally don't strike up a conversation with strangers in London is one of the things that I found. And it's just, it's not a good thing, it's not a bad thing, it's just an interesting thing. Um, so there you have it. And the other unfortunate thing is that in uh, town, in the city of London, there's still a lot of homeless people. And uh, I, for one, adopted a homeless man. I like to call him Gabriel. I never did learn his name. But um, Gabriel used to sit on this bench on my way home. Because remember, I walked and it took me like 40 minutes to get to my flat from the office. So on my walk home, I noticed there was this guy who would always sit on the same bench. And Gabriel wasn't, you know, sometimes in the U.S. you see these guys at the corner of the streets and they've got these plaques, you know, hungry or homeless or something. And some of them look like they just took a shower this morning and took a shave and you're kind of wondering if they're homeless. 
Well, my Gabriel did not look like that. My Gabriel was homeless, and boy, did he look homeless. And he smelled it, too. And um, so I took to bringing Gabriel food on my way home. So I would go to McDonald's, and I'd go buy uh, a meal for Gabriel. And he and I never had a conversation. I would just walk by, and I would drop it off. Sometimes he'd be asleep, and I would tuck it in by his feet so that nobody could see it and come take it. And um, if he was awake, I'd just come by, I'd, I'd look at him, and I'd say good evening, and I would drop off the food on my way. And, I, you know, you never know how people are. You can't assume he's going to be so grateful. You can't assume he's not going to be embarrassed. You can't, you know, you can't assume anything. And uh, But I would look at him because I, I, I was on the board, and I still support a company called Aon Homes. And um, it's a it's a Minneapolis-based uh, developer, real estate developer company that builds affordable housing for primarily the formerly homeless. And one of the things we've got some residents on our board, and um, many of those residents were formerly homeless. And one of the things that I learned is that uh, sometimes homeless people feel invisible because people are so embarrassed they don't look at them, even if they give them money, they don't look at them. And they won't look them in the face, they won't acknowledge them, and it's hurtful because it feels like you're not looking at me and acknowledging me as a as a real person. So the next time you walk by somebody who is homeless, I urge you, say hello, look them in the face, smile at them, acknowledge them. So I would look at Gabriel, I would acknowledge him, I would say hello, and I'd, I'd drop off some food. And um, so that was my little bit that I could do for the world. And the other thing that I will say about that is, you know, you are never, there's always an opportunity to do good. There's an, always an opportunity to bless someone and extend God's love to another human being, no matter where you are. So that is what I will leave you with today. Um Things that I really liked about London, the mass transit system was phenomenal. The tourist sites were fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed the people that I work with, and the diversity was wonderful. Things that I missed when I was in London, boy, did I miss my car. On those rainy, really cold days, being able to just get in the car and go where I wanted, I loved it. My spacious house, um, reliable Internet, TiVo, predictable television, all of those things, but overall an amazing experience. So with that, I will say to you, thank you for listening to the Speedway Show and joining me today. And until next time, go in peace and take every opportunity to visit and, and travel to different countries and experience different things. Thank you for joining us on the Speedway Show. Visit thespeedwayshow.com for content and other episodes. Join the fan page at facebook.com slash the Speedway Show. And follow Speedway on Twitter at the handle the Speedway Show. Until next week, live well, live fully, and love deeply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs>